Welcome to the Stereoactive Movie Club. My name is Jeremiah, and I am here with Alicia, Mia, and Stephen. Unfortunately, Laura is not able to join us for this episode. And for those who may not have listened to the show before, this is a podcast where we discuss movies that have appeared on Sight and Sound Magazine's poll of the greatest movies ever made. The poll comes out every 10 years, and the latest one just came out on Thursday, December 1st, five days ago now from when we're recording today. Um, so normally, we start off the show by hearing from everyone about one film they've watched since the last time we recorded, but how about this time we'll go around and everyone tells us as best as they can remember what their first quick reaction or thought was when they saw the new critics and directors list. Like, what was your feeling about it? Like, did you have a reaction in your head? Like, can you tell us how you felt? And let's start with Steven. Well, my reaction was, huh? I was really kind of shocked because first of all, I hadn't heard of the first movie before at all, like anywhere. And second, I thought it was like, oh, that's not, it's not Citizen Kane or it's not Vertigo. (laughs) So it kind of intrigued me to read more about it. So that was my first reaction. Okay. And Alicia? Yeah, I was um, pleasantly surprised with just like the list overall. There were a lot of newer films and much more diverse uh, roster of filmmakers on there. So I was really happy to see that. And then I also was like confused because I was like, wait a minute, is this even the name of a movie? I was like, am I looking at the right thing? When the when I saw the number one movie, I thought I never heard of it. I just thought it was like reading a new article or something when I first saw it. Right. And Mia? I mean, <clears throat> yeah, similar to Steven and Alicia, I was very excited to see newer films on the list, um, especially the way the website was loading. It started at the end, which was like get out and parasite and a lot of newer movies that we've talked about hoping would be on the list and that i'd never heard of the first film so i was also just like whoa like way out of left field curveball here so which was exciting and obviously i was excited once i realized that it was a female director i was very excited for that since that was a first yeah, and uh, I'm, I think, a combination or overlap or whatever of everything you guys have said. I was both um, surprised and confused um, in, in, in different measures. I, I was uh, surprised that there was such a shakeup, especially in the top 10, and just like scanning through the full 100. Uh, it looked like there were so many movies that I was pretty sure had not been on the list or as high on the list previously and some of them which we'll get to um have been made since the last time the list came out 10 years ago and then yeah that number one um i we'll get to it in more detail in a little bit but like my reaction to that was like huh okay because it was a title of a movie that i've seen before but literally knew next to nothing about like i i so it was just surprising that after the film canon being defined by this list of of the greatest film being Citizen Kane forever than Vertigo for one shot 10 years ago, um, that all of a sudden the so-called greatest film ever made was a movie that I knew nothing about, really. Um, and it's kind of like freeing in a way, you know? It's like, oh, I get to learn something. Um, so I don't know. I looked on the bright side of it if, if there needed to be one, which I'm not say, I'm not sure there needed to be. But um, okay. So let's get into the details a bit more. Uh, Here's how Sight & Sound quickly summarizes the poll itself in their own intro to the list on their website. Um, In 1952, 
The Sight and Sound team had the novel idea of asking critics to name the greatest films of all time. The tradition became decennial, increasing in size and prestige as the decades passed. The Sight and Sound poll is now a major bellwether of critical opinion on cinema, and this year's edition, its eighth, is the largest ever, with 1,639 participating critics, programmers, curators, archivists, and academics each submitting their top 10 ballot. And I should point out that this is talking specifically about the critics poll, and we'll get more into all that in a little bit. All right, so on this podcast, we've generally only covered movies that have at one time appeared in the top 10 or as a runner-up. So let's go ahead and just name-check all the movies that did make the top 10 of the critics poll this time first. Um, Mia, do you want to start us off? So at number 10, we have Singing in the Rain, which has been in the top 10 before and is now back, which I love. Uh, released in 1951 from the U.S., directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donan. At number nine is Man with a Movie Camera, released in 1929 from the USSR, directed by Dziga Vertov. Number eight is Mulholland Drive, released in 2001 as a co-production of France and the U.S., directed by David Lynch. Number seven is Beau Travel, released in 1998 from France, directed by Claire Denis. Number six is 2001, A Space Odyssey, released in 1968 as a co-production of the U.S. and U.K., directed by Stanley Kubrick. Number five is In the Mood for Love, released in 2000 as a co-production of Hong Kong and France, directed by Wan Kar Wai. Number four is Tokyo Story, released in 1953 from Japan, directed by Yasujiro Ozu. Number three is Citizen Kane, released in 1941 from the U.S., directed by Orson Welles. Number two is Vertigo, released in 1958, also from the U.S., directed by Halford Hitchcock. And number one is Jean Dillemont, and that's the abbreviated title, of course, uh, released in 1975 as a co-production of Belgium and France, directed by Chantal Ackerman. And by the way, the runner-up at number 11 was Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, released in 1927 from the U.S., directed by F.W. Murnau. And now the director's poll, which, because of ties, actually includes 11 films. Mia? So tied at number nine are three movies. Close Up, released in 1989 from Iran, directed by Abbas Kiarostami. Persona, released in 1966 from Sweden, directed by Ingmar Bergman, and In the Mood for Love. Number eight is Mirror, released in 1975 from the USSR, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. And tied for number six are Eight and a Half, released in 1963 as a co-production of Italy and France, directed by Federico Fellini and Vertigo. Tied at number four are Jean Dillemont and Tokyo Story. Number three is The Godfather, released in 1972 from the U.S., directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Number two is Citizen Kane. And number one is 2001, A Space Odyssey. And the runners-up in the director's poll, tied at number 12, are Barry Lyndon, released in 1975 as a co-production of the U.S. and U.K., directed by Stanley Kubrick, and Taxi Driver, released in 1976 from the U.S., directed by Martin Scorsese. Uh, to give a sense of how the lists have changed in 10 years, on the critics' poll, five of the top films in the top 10 were not there in 2012. Of those five, four never have been. Then of those four, three are more recent than any film that's ever been in the top 10. Also, worth noting, two women have films in the top 10 now, while no woman 
has ever been in the top 10 before. Uh, the top film this time, Jean Dillemont, was at number 35 in 2012, just to give a sense of how much it moved up uh, in 10 years. On the director's poll, three films are new to the top 10. Of those three, two are more recent than any film that's ever been in the top 10. And one woman now has a film in the top 10. Also, I believe, a first. The top film this time, 2001, was tied for second in 2012. Um, and so that means the pool of movies we previously had to choose from for this podcast was 51 based on our criteria of them either being in the top 10 or a runner-up. So looking at the previous eight decades, now that's up to 57. And those new ones are Jean Dillemont, In the Mood for Love, Barry Lyndon, Close Up, Beau Travel, and Mulholland Drive. So, um, Mia, which of those have you seen already? So I have seen Mulholland Drive and In the Mood for Love. And then since the list was released last week, Jeremiah and I watched Jean Dielman, but I was not aware of it before this list. So I only watched it because of this. And Stephen? I unfortunately have not seen any that are on this list. <laughs> so, Okay, Alicia? Um, I've seen In the Mood for Love and Mulholland Drive. All right, and I had seen Mulholland Drive and Barry Lyndon in, in the Mood for Love, and then, as Mia said, we watched Jean Dielman because it was number one on this, so now I've seen that as well. Um, so I never saw Close Up, and I never saw Beau Travel. Have Wait, I'm just going back. Has any of us seen Close Up or Beau Travel? I don't think anyone here had, right? No, I hadn't. Okay. Um, so now expanding out to the full 100, there's a lot more change throughout. Uh, and I'm going to borrow some stats compiled by Kevin B. Lee on Twitter. And I believe he is a film professor. Um, and yeah, so the highest debuts. So these are the movies that were new to the critics list. And all these stats, I think, are, are pertain to the critics list, not the director's list. So that's what we're talking about here for a little while. So um, the highest debuts again. Cleo from 5 to 7 came in at 14. Meshes of the Afternoon at 16. Do the Right Thing at 24. Daisies at 28. Portrait of a Lady on Fire at 30. Killer of Sheep at 43. Wanda at 48. The Piano at 50. News from Home at 52, The Apartment at 54, Daughters of the Dust at 60, and also Moonlight at 60. Um, so a tie there. There's a lot of ties in these lists, by the way, for anybody who hasn't looked at them. Uh, so get used to that. Um, but I don't know. Does anybody want to comment on these films that are all completely new uh, to the list this time? Um, I was really happy to see Moonlight on there because I think I've mentioned a few times in the Facebook group that that was going to be probably one of my choices for one that I thought should be on there um, and do the right thing. I'm excited to see and the piano and the apartment. <laughs> I mean, these mm -hmm. all, all seem really good. I don't know. I'm not familiar with really any of the other ones, but I was kind of going through the list the other day in preparation for this and Daisy's looked interesting and um Where's the other one? Cleo from five to seven. That looked interesting. So I'm excited to have some new things to watch. Yeah, I think uh, Cleo from five to seven is an Agnes Varda film. And mm -hmm. 
she, I think, got a lot of uh, late in life recognition in recent years. Uh, she had a movie that was nominated for a documentary Oscar a few years back now. And I feel like that put her back on the radar and newly on the radar for a lot of people who were younger and may not have been as familiar with her work because she was part of like the uh, the French New Wave, um, one of the female film directors that was part of that and a very influential one. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I think it was great to see something from her up there. Um, I, I was definitely surprised to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire just three years after it was released come in at number 30. That's a very strong showing for, I think, any movie just entering the list, but especially such a new movie. Uh, I was really happy to see Do the Right Thing finally be on the list. Um, I kind of almost wish it would have been higher, but it's nice that it was on there at least. Um, yeah. Uh, me or Steven, do you have any thoughts? I'm happy to see the apartment just because there's not very many comedies that are on the list. And and that mm -hmm. was definitely one that really good point made a, made a dent for me. And I saw that on the big screen for the first time a couple of years ago. And it was, it was a quite an experience. And then also yeah. would do the right thing. I feel like um, Spike Lee is kind of, been forgotten by a lot of critics. So I think it's really great to have him on the list as well. Yeah, I agree with all that. And I haven't seen Daughters of the Dust, but it's been on my list to see it. Um, it's the story of a family on the Gullah Islands in South Carolina. And mm -hmm. I, uh, when Beyonce made Lemonade, her visual album, apparently this movie was a big inspiration for a lot of the visuals. Um, so I've just wanted to see it since then. So I'm excited that it's on here. Yeah, and I think there was a fresh um, remaster re-release of that in recent years, too. Um, that, Like, I always assume that that plays a part in these lists of, like, new availability or wider availability must play a key part in some movies entering the list, especially when they've been out for a while and weren't on the list previously, you know? Um, which and I'm Beyonce. not saying that... Yeah, sure. The Beyonce bump <laughs> helped, I'm sure. Um, I did want to mention... Um, Kevin B. Lee, who we're getting all these stats from, um, he did mention in his thread with all this stuff on Twitter uh, pertaining to the apartment, since you brought it up, Stephen, that the th he, he, I'll just read it. He says, here's a theory on why the apartment rose so high and why Billy Wilder is now the second most prominent Hollywood director on the poll behind Hitchcock. He is the auteur whose qualities are most relevant to TV series, screenwriting and dialogue, character and a hard edge sensibility. So I think that's an interesting observation and I buy it um, just off the cuff anyway. <laughs> what do you yeah, guys think? I think? Mad Men is like almost directly pulled from <laughs> the apartment. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A more dour version, but sure. It's, yeah, but I mean, it's a lot of the same elements are there big time. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, and I want to say about the apartment that Steve and I Stephen and I went to see that with some friends on the big screen in Brooklyn and oh. we went out afterwards for dirty martinis and it was like the perfect apartment viewing experience you should everyone it should really do that was. sometime in their Sounds life amazing. <laughs> yeah it was really yeah fun. we watched that what Can't like a year it. or so ago mia mm -hmm. or maybe Probably even more, more. Ago now, yeah it might have yeah. been when we lived in that apartment so like that was over two years ago I don't remember, but this anyway, time. yeah. Can, can we actually, Jeremiah, can you talk a bit about how the voting for this works? Because I think it's important that people know that it's just 
you get to choose 10 movies and rate them, but you're not necessarily ranking them. I think that explains the ties right? and explains how movies could jump so much. Yeah. So my understanding on this and don't like hold me to it. Like I probably should have done a little more research on this, but like, I'm pretty sure that the way the list is compiled is they send these ballots out to all the people they invite to participate, whether they're critics, other people in the industry who vote in that list or directors who vote in that list. And they're just told, List your 10 favorite films. And I don't believe there is any ranking to it. I think it's just like a listing of it, a mention equals a vote. And so if you see that um, a film has, I don't know, like 200 mentions, that means 200 people had it on their lists. That's all it means. There's no waiting for a rank. You know, it's not like if somebody... Um, in some polls, like I think like the old Paz and Jop poll uh, or whatever it was called from uh, Village Voice, like they did it like where if you gave a ranked list, maybe like the the number one movie got 10 points and the number 10 movie got one point. And, you know, so like your the, the amount of love you had for a movie weighed in on the decision or the uh, balance of, of the score for a movie. Um, and that's not, that's not the way this is. So I do think it like that does account for like why some movies like move up a lot or why there are so many ties, I guess, because, um, one mention equals one point, so to speak. And it, it doesn't even necessarily mean that like Jean Dielman or any other movie, wherever it falls on the list is anyone's favorite movie. It could very well be that like, however many people voted for Jean Dielman, None of them would have put this number one if they were ranking it. I'm sure some of them would. Probably a lot of them would. But just in this thought experiment, maybe no one does. But it still ends up as the number one movie because it was mentioned that many times, uh, which I think is, is an interesting thing uh, about this, I guess. Uh, what do you guys think of that process? Like, I guess we've never really explored that as much as we've talked about the list in the past. And we, we I don't I don't feel like we've ever gone super deep on all the intricacies of the list. So this has never come up, but like, what do you guys think? To be honest with you, I never even thought about, <laughs> about how it was ranked or scored. So that was kind of interesting to me. And then also I was thinking that there must've been some sea change for them to completely get this movie catapulted to number one. So is it just, there's more critics now or they're different critics or, you know, so I was thinking about that as well when I was, when I was thinking about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's more and different. <laughs> I think that both of those pertain or, or how you would qualify it. Like, I think they invited different voices to to be a part of the conversation. Um, and like, that's going to change the makeup of your list if you change the makeup of the voters or the participants, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think that people who do know about this movie, unlike us before Thursday, really, um, like knew of it as a movie that was groundbreaking Jean Dielman I'm speaking of for um for like being a feminist um work I think it's interesting I mean I I, I wish we had a time machine and could go back to the first one because I do wish we'd clarified this at the beginning um both for ourselves and for our listeners um just because it's I just assumed it was people submit a ranked list and you know maybe maybe every single person who votes doesn't rank every single film 
but or you know doesn't do all 100 but i guess i assumed it was ranked and i guess it's just interesting because you know citizen kane vertigo you know these other movies are regarded as the best movies or you know the greatest films of all time and yeah but also it's a bunch of people who aren't necessarily saying that this movie is the greatest film of all time if that makes sense so right it's just different and i think it shows when you have something like that how you know i don't know what all these new critics and other folks that were added this year but you know if they were organizing amongst themselves for a shakeup i can see how you could overtake this pretty easily Mm -hmm. alicia did you have thoughts yeah, I also, I think I just never had any idea how the voting worked at all. I never really thought about it either. I mean, I I, I knew they polled critics and directors and that they compiled the like information, but I just never thought about the process of how they came up with the rankings. But I think it makes, like, I understand it. I think it makes sense. I do think maybe ranking, maybe having people rank them would lead to a better idea of what people actually do consider the best but at the same time i'm i'm cool with the way things came out this year (laughs) and i do think like maybe they're maybe doing it this way does lead to like more diversity in the top 10 or and just the list overall so i think that's good but um but you guys said that there there was a big jump in the number of people they Hold from like 2000 between 2002 to 2012 mm-hmm. and then they doubled that again between 2012 and 2022 is that what they did yeah in 2002 at least <clears throat> for the critics poll um it was i think 145 people and then yeah. they went up to 800 something okay yeah and then went... this time they went up to 1600 something mm-hmm. so and they increased the number so much, and I assume not just the number, but you know the type of people they were asking in mm-hmm. response to criticisms of the poll of being, you know, too white, too male, too old, probably too Eurocentric, too, or you know, Euro US centric as well. Yeah. Um. But it, I, I'm just fascinated by this, and I don't know what the answer is, and I'm sure someone who has studied this a lot more than I have has done some sort of analysis online of like why wasn't there a huge change in 2012 then like what we're seeing right now and maybe there was you know maybe it wasn't like as big of a change but maybe it was like a step forward that when we started looking at this in 2020 just maybe didn't seem as much like as much of a step forward you know and the world has obviously changed a lot in the last 10 years and I think the pressures of you know, Black Lives Matter and Me Too and just all the social movements that have happened the last few years obviously could have a bigger impact on this, on the list and on the people selecting films. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I just like the mental image of like all the female critics like being like, okay, we're all writing this, right? Like you're (laughs) writing this down, right? Okay. And like going with that. I do think that I I do feel like maybe people, maybe the critics were trying to be more intentional with their choices this time. And I'm okay with that. I don't, yeah, I feel like, like, same that you, same thing you were saying. Like, when I first saw the list, I was like, wow, I think the political climate of the last, not even 10 years, but even just the last five years Mm -hmm. really made people think a lot more about which movies they were putting on their ballot. Yeah. Yeah. And to, to Mia's point, I, I do think that it was, 
viewed in 2012 as like the top 10 didn't change much. Like they, they went through all this trouble of expanding the pool um, from 145 participants in 2002 to 846 in 2012. And also I think really trying to diversify the types of uh, voices they were bringing in. Um, and still the top 10 looked like largely how it had, except for Vertigo being at the top. And the, the movie that was new to the top 10 was a 1927 Soviet silent film instead of like a film that you would think like younger critics would have voted in, you know? So it, I, I do remember there being a sense in 2012 of like, wait, what? Because uh, of that happening. But like, I think if you maybe looked at the full hundred, I wonder, like, I don't have that in front of me. I don't know the numbers there, but I wonder if the full 100 seemed more progressive, if you want to use that word. Um, from 2002 to 2012. And then I think it's it just, you know, they, like like we've already said, they went from 846 in 2012 to 1639 in 2022. And yeah, it's like a lot of shakeups, not just in the top 10, but in the full 100, as we've mm -hmm. already been discussing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's also the same thing as in the Academy Awards. It seems like mm -hmm. even over the past five to 10 years, the best picture winners have not been the typical ones that you'd always see. So I think there probably was a concerted effort to kind of like, we need to shake things up a little bit to be relevant because I think a lot of people probably looked at this list and said, Oh, it's the same people like, like me, for example. I mean, I looked at it and I was completely surprised to see like the different movies that were in the top 10. So I, I feel like that's probably part of what they were thinking. Yeah. I mean, having watched this list for 20 years like the the 2002 one was like the first one where i was like of of an age to be aware of it and actually pay attention to it and care about it when it came out to some degree um i mean like the fact that there are five new movies or really four new movies because i maybe we shouldn't count uh singing in the rain since it's been in the top 10 before but there were four new movies in the top 10 of the critics list this time and that's like that was shocking you know it really was i thought and the fact that two of them were by women, directed by women. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, unfortunately shocking, but a great too. Mia? Yeah. Um, I had a question too, because throughout our conversation, we've been referring more to the critics list. Is that the yeah. one that's considered, like if you're talking about the sight and sound poll, is it the critics list that's kind of the default one? Or is that considered the more accurate or prestigious one? Or why that one? Yeah, to my mind, I, I think that, yes, it is considered the default one for a couple of reasons. One, it's the one that's been going since 1952. They only started doing the director's list, I think, in 92 or 2002. We have it on our um, on our spreadsheet that we use, um, but I don't have it in front of me at the moment. Um, so there's that. And then also the pool of directors that they uh, survey for the director's list is smaller. Okay. Um, I don't have that number in front of me at the moment, but, um, yeah, it's, it's not 1600 directors. Um, it's like, I want to say it's somewhere in the four to 700 range or something. I don't know, but I do think they increased that, but like, I don't, I don't think it was probably nearly as dramatic. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Great. Thank you. Actually, why don't we take a quick break? We'll be right back.
And we're back. So getting back to these stats, um, some other things that might be interesting to, to get into. Uh, there were a lot of movies that had been in the top 100 before, like la in 2012, but moved up quite a bit. So these are the ones that moved within the top 100 by the most. Uh, Beau Travel moved up 71 spots. Ali, Furious the Soul, moved up 43. The Night of the Hunter moved up 38. I wish that one was in the top 10. Jean Dielman, as we said before, moved up 34 spots. Tuki Buki moved up 27. Close Up moved up 25. Casablanca moved up 21. Mulholland Drive moved up 20. M moved up 20 mm -hmm. in the mood for love. And Playtime moved up 19. And Imitation of Life moved up 18. So that's not necessarily all the movies that moved up, but those are the top movers there. Um, any comments on those? I want to watch a lot of them. Yeah. Um, yes. Casablanca, I'd want to watch again. I only saw that for the first time maybe like five years ago. It's a great movie. It's amazing. The best yeah, movie. Would that be at the top of your list, Mia? It would be really high. I mean, that was one yeah. of the things when you first told me about this poll, and I was like, wait, what do you mean Casablanca is like relegated? I can't believe it. I mean, it's just because what? It's like AFI's number one movie, or it has been and stuff. So, yeah, or up there. Yeah. And I think it's just regarded as like one of the best, you know, one of the best love stories, one of the best films. Yeah. Like when you think of classic cinema, you think of Casablanca. Um, I love it. I've seen it at BAM on the big screen and a couple other places on the big screen and, and a, in the comfort of my home too. And it's just a wonderful <laughs> film. So just my only other comment is I don't know a lot of these other ones. Yeah. So. I can't Except remember I if I've seen M or not. I feel like M is a movie I would have watched, but I can't remember if I have or not. Yeah. Some of these I've seen, but I have no recollection of what they yeah, it's been about. A while. Yeah. yeah. I saw, I remember that I saw M sitting in a little booth with a little TV in the library at NYU. And it was a like terrible translation. Cause it's like one of those times when, you know, it's, it's in German and people would talk for a good while. And then the translation would be like two words. I was like, I'm missing something here. Like, <laughs> this is no good. Um, so I always kind of felt like I needed to revisit it and just never have. Uh, Cause I don't think that was the best experience of watching it. Um, so highest drop-offs from the top 100. So these are movies that were previously in the top 100 in 2012 and no longer are. Um, so Godfather Part 2 was at number 31 in 2012, no longer in the top 100. Uh, I think this has maybe gotten the most conversation or some of the most conversation. And uh, let's come back to that one. Let me get through the list and then we'll, we'll come back to that. So um, Gertrude was at number 42 in 2012. No longer on the list. Raging Bull was at 53. Touch of Evil, 57. Le Moment et la Poutine was at 59. Wild Strawberries was at 63. So was Pickpocket. And uh, so was Rio Bravo. Uh, Le Clis was at 73. Le, Les Enfants de Paradis was at 73. And so was La Grande Illusion and Nashville. So the last four were all at, tied at 73 in 2012. And none of them are in the top 100. None of those were in the top 100. Um, so... Yeah, Raging Bull has gotten a lot of discussion. Um, theories I have seen are that... So we, we've kind of talked about this, I think, in the past, like when we first started doing the podcast, but one year, at least, they allowed The Godfather and The Godfather 2 to count as one movie for people to vote on, and it ranked pretty high that time. Then they split it up after that. They said, you can't do that anymore, and it 
they both fell. Um, but I think Godfather 2 fell further. And I think I kind of get it. And I don't know if you guys will agree with me about this, but like, I understand deciding if I'm going to vote for one of these movies and maybe I should only vote for one of them, I'm going to vote for The Godfather, even though I personally, as we, I, and I think as we discussed when we did the episode um, on Godfather 2, like, I think it's the better movie probably, but it doesn't stand on its own to me. Like, I can't watch The Godfather Part 2 and get the same um, power from it if I haven't seen The Godfather. That's my opinion. Um, so I, th- I I have a feeling that's why it's not there. What do you guys think? Any thoughts? I also think the first one has a tighter story. The second one is great. It's really sprawling. Uh, and I love I love it. But I just, in terms of like story structure, I, I think the first one is a little more cohesive and so i think maybe that's why it edged it out but yeah maybe also people were just trying to not split the vote so i don't know yeah i i actually do enjoy the first one better or more than the second one just as a movie goes um but i feel like they should have put both of them on the list like they shouldn't have actually either both of them should have been there or none of them should have been there just because they're both such great movies and they complement each other so well mm. Um, I feel like it would have been hard for me to make a decision based on that. So I would have probably had both. Okay. And uh, one that I want to also point out is Nashville dropping off, I think is a shame because there is no Altman film on there. And, uh, you know, he was an innovative filmmaker. Um, I've seen, I've seen um, people speculate about some of these movies feature, very explicit misogyny and maybe violence towards women. And so maybe people didn't want to honor them in the same way that they've been honored in the past, whether the films actually are glamorizing that or just portraying it is another question, but I have seen people suggest that and there might be something to that. Like that's if, if a critic doesn't like a movie or whoever is voting critic or director, doesn't like a movie, they don't like a movie, you know? If they don't like it because it shows something they don't want to see, that's for them to say, you know? But, well, the Touch of Evil, definitely. I mean, it's it's hard to get past the brown face now. I haven't watched it yeah. since I was in college, but I would imagine what I would think today if I was watching it. Could I even get past it enough to see it as a good or a bad movie, you know? Right, right. I was surprised about um, Raging Bull coming off and Taxi Driver staying on, but... <laughs> But I know we uh, we all have our opinions on which one of those is better. <laughs> I completely hate Taxi Driver, so that's just uh, my opinion. Yeah, I, I'm the other way, as you're alluding to, I mm-hmm. think. Um, I, I think Taxi Driver is a much better film. I, and if we're talking about like Scorsese films uh, particularly, I, I think it's the better one to honor of his if, if you're trying to get one of his up there. Um, that's my opinion. Now moving to films that stayed in the top 100 from 2012 to 2002, but dropped significantly. These are the top drops in the top 100. And again, these are all talking about the critics list at this point. So the general, which we have reviewed on the show dropped 61, uh, La Ventura, which we also covered dropped 51 battleship Potemkin dropped 43 Piro Le Fou, which we covered dropped 42 Santantango dropped 41. So did Andre Rublev. Ugetsu dropped 40. Hiswaz du Cinema uh, dropped 36. Le Mepri 
33, also The Leopard 33, Metropolis, and A Man Escaped both dropped 32, Journey to Italy dropped 31, and Breathless dropped 25. Um, so any thoughts on those since we have watched a couple of those and they're still on the top 100 but not as high as they once were? You can say it. <laughs> I literally don't see how Pierre LeFou is still on this list. It's so bad. <laughs> we hated it. We hated yeah. it. Like, how yeah, is for that? our listeners, we actually have already recorded that episode, but it hasn't come out yet. But none of us enjoyed the movie, really, just to give a spoiler. Oh, yeah. my God. Like, it was how pretty. Is... It was yeah. pretty. Sure. It really yeah, was. Yeah. I'll give it that. Sure. But not pretty enough to make you want to watch it. <laughs> like there's other, <laughs> I don't want people to think, oh, it's pretty. I'll watch it with the sound off or something, you know, yeah. it's still, there's better movies for that even. Mm-hmm. Um, I just can't believe that The Godfather is two is the sequel. The, the, the requel is uh, ranked <laughs> higher than or ranked lower than this movie. Well, I, I guess pertaining to this list, and maybe the other drop list, I'd have to look back at it. I, I saw someone spec. I saw some speculation about um, because there were Battleship Potemkin, Andrei Rublev. Was there something else that was uh, from Russia or the USSR? Like someone was saying, basically, like if you flipped when the Ukraine war started and when Godard died, we might have a different list here because like mm-hmm. people might have not wanted to honor. Russian films, which may be silly to think of it that way. And uh, the ballots had already gone out when Godard passed away, unfortunately, very recently. Um, so that might not have, like, if, if uh, people were voting after he had died, which they may not have been, uh, maybe Breathless would have not dropped 25. Maybe it would be in the top 10. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, so... I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm just saying that this is speculation I've seen because there's a lot of conversation going online, uh, a lot of chatter. So just reporting what I've read, t- take it with a grain of salt for sure. Um, but any thoughts on that, anybody? Not on that, but on some other stuff on this particular Yeah, go for list. it. <laughs> um, yeah, I was sad to see Love and Tura drop that far because I really... Um, I, I really did come to like that movie when we watched it and I was happy to see like a, a little homage in this current season of the white Lotus. That was really fun. <laughs> um, and I was surprised, but maybe in a good way that the general dropped as far as it did. Um, and yeah, the rest of them, I don't think I've seen. So those are my takeaways from that. Yeah. And another, another bit of speculation that I've read is, actually relates to like our conversation about the general when we talked about it, that maybe people didn't want to recognize a film Mm -hmm. um, where the hero isn't in the Confederacy as much anymore. So maybe that's why it dropped so much and why Sherlock Jr. Keaton's uh, other film was up higher this time. Um, Okay. So we could talk about like the spread of movies from, from regions of the world or countries. I mean, there's there's some movement there. I guess it's safe to say. Like, I, I there were a few fewer films from Western Europe, even though um, there was the same number from the USA and just one less from France. Still a very Franco-friendly <laughs> list. Still a very U.S.-friendly list. Um, and then Eastern Europe stayed the same. Asia, uh, four more films from Asia than last time. 
uh, still just two African films. This time there was an Australian film and still no Latin American films, which is pretty crazy, I think. <laughs> That's no, a pretty not. significant chunk of the world that's just not represented by this list at all. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's pretty sad. Those are some of the stats that were compiled by, again, Kevin B. Lee. Um, so appreciate that he put that together and that we could pull from that and, and have a discussion. But um, why don't we kind of circle back to the big news, the top film, the greatest film of all time, according to the new list, Jean Dillemont. Um, So Mia, you and I watched it. What were your thoughts on it? Just let's let's describe it for people who may not be familiar with it, which is probably a lot of people like us. Sure. So the film follows a a woman who is a a widow, and it's her um, going through her daily domestic routines, taking care of the house, taking care of her son. Um, she's also a prostitute, so men come over in the afternoons. And it's slow cinema, so it's following, like, she needs meatloaf, she washes the dishes, she cooks food, she sets the table, and it's all basically in real time. There aren't really, um, you know, none of the stuff that's typically cut out of films is cut out. It's the point of this film. There's very little dialogue. There's no soundtrack. Um, It's very sparse. And like I said earlier I'd never heard of it before but it was a it's considered a feminist film she's considered a feminist director and my understanding of that is because it's you know shining this light on domestic work a woman as the you know centerpiece of the film and it is her in relation to men like there's her and her son's relationship they don't really go into they they touch on her and her husband's relationship, but her and her deceased husband, but it's not like a major focal point of the film, in my opinion. And then her But the the film does kind of define her as a widow, so that is like Yeah, know. but there's like one scene when they go into it, maybe two, but it's not he's not like constantly brought up or anything like that. Um and and then it's her, I don't even want to say relationships, but her like interactions with the three or four men who stop by over the course of the three days. Um, but anyways, it's like very much centering her and her experiences and like I said, shining this light on domestic work, housekeeping, running errands, shopping, cleaning, cooking, those kind of things that are usually – not seen in films and not prioritized. Um, I'm like struggling because I don't want to say too much because I know we're going to do an episode about this at some point. So yeah. like obviously I don't want to give away any major plot points, but also like, I don't know. So look, anyways, let me just stop there. And then if we keep talking, right. I can say, well, share more about it. But yeah. I want to add in that like you, you mentioned it, it happens in real time and I've seen it described that way elsewhere. Um, so I do want to clarify because I think that can be confusing. It's not like, the movie is basically three hours and 20 minutes long, yeah. right? It's not examining a three hour and 20 minute chunk of this woman's life. Uh, it's divided into three parts, rep- uh, which are three days of her life. Mm-hmm. And it's 
that each shot happens in real time, which mm-hmm. I mean, doesn't every shot, but there's not cutting within a scene. Basically, anytime that there is a cut to a new shot, it's either because we're going to a different location or we're skipping ahead in time a little bit um, to move things along to the next task that she is going to complete or go through the ritual and routine of her day. Um, so it's, it's again, it's not that the movie happens in absolute real time. It's just that, like, we watch things happen, you know, like a shot plays out, like you watch her do a thing. And you don't cut, you don't cut into it to see her hand more closely and cut back out to see her reaction on her face. It's all in like a wide or a medium shot until you cut to the next thing that's going to happen or the next place something is going to happen. Um, and mm-hmm. so I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. And and but it's it's a very purposeful type of filmmaking, um, I think is safe to say. And it's not probably for everyone. I, I like. I do think that there's. I think it's maybe for personally for me. I would describe this film, um, and it might sound cliche, as a film that I appreciate rather than I necessarily enjoy. But I do appreciate it. Like I see what it's trying to do. I, I understand it at some point, and I. I, I think that it, it is a strong film. Like, I think it has a message. And if you're willing to go with it and, like, experience it, there is something there to be had. So, like, I, I think that a lot of the discussion in this film could be scary to people who, are like, don't usually watch this kind of movie. So, I don't know. I just wanted to kind of demystify it or sort of, like, whatever. But, like, I, I'm sure a lot of people probably saw this film listed there and like us we're like what is this exactly and we'll put it on and are going to turn it off and not get through the three hours i mean a lot of people don't get through any three-hour movie but like it's a tough watch i think it's safe to say i would call it a tough watch and i think it's a tough watch for a lot of casual movie watchers so i don't know do you think if it was a shorter movie it would have been better like maybe if it was you know maybe that's the thing no i don't think so because i think the length of the film plays a role in the message of the film yeah the length is the point almost yeah you know yeah you'll you'll see when you watch it no i mean (laughs) you know i feel like it's hard to describe it and it is hard to describe that doesn't make it sound dumb or i don't know like yeah something that you'd say well if it was this could it be better if it was this like yeah i mean if it had more dialogue if it had a soundtrack if it was like an hour and a half shorter like but then it would just be a completely different movie right like you know so mm. well you yeah. know there's some movies that you know you can take 20 minutes out of it and you're like oh the pacing yeah. would have been better and it would have been a better right. movie or dragged out too much or whatever that's why i was asking i was just yeah. curious yeah no i mean i think it's a fair question and yeah. I, I think that with a lot of movies that would be the case and i think this is one where it's like odd that yeah like it's it feels like a, a movie as you're watching it sometimes that you're like oh my god this is going on forever but then when you get to the end of it, you're like, I guess it needed to. Yeah. You know, it's 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 it's, it's just a different type of movie um, and definitely a different type of movie that's ever been at the top of this list uh, since it's only the fourth movie to ever be at the top of this list. I haven't seen it, obviously, but I think it sounds um, really interesting. And I think maybe like as a woman, I can I could identify with like the sort of stultifying Mm -hmm. and like oppressive, you know, like long shots because 
that's sort of how like not me per not our generation really or even like our mother's generation but like so yeah. much but like women for you know hundreds and thousands of years before that have had these like very have been forced to have the, that type of life and they haven't had a lot of opportunities to be educated or you know have careers and things like that things that would make like more interesting movie but also i think it's interesting that this it sounds like this movie is more like pushing the envelope on um the form like filmmaking as a a type Mm -hmm. of filmmaking as opposed to like being like an entertaining (laughs) movie or having like a really strong story or something i mean i don't know i haven't seen it but like so i think that's kind of interesting that they did that because vertigo and citizen kane are have such strong stories even though they are also like doing interesting things with filmmaking they have they also are like really tight and interesting Mm -hmm. stories right Yeah, I was going to say less eloquently, but basically a similar point that to me, it's so significant that it's not just that there is a movie about a woman or a movie by a woman, but this like hard to watch kind of like unpalatable, palatable movie about not a very likable woman. Like that's the top movie. Like to me, that's like such a big statement there, you know, Mm. like women don't have to be likable. They don't have to be what you want them to be. It doesn't have to be a movie that's about a woman in this like really neat package with a plot and, (laughs) you know, a climax. I mean, there is a climax to the movie, but it's not a normal quote unquote movie. So, and I was going to make a very similar point, Alicia, like compared to Citizen Kane, which is like this larger than life story. Like this is the tiniest of stories here. Um, mm-hmm. so anyways, I just thought that was really significant. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it sounds like we're probably going to get to this movie pretty quick in our lineup of movies we watch for the show. Right. So I don't want to belabor the point too much, but like, just to say another thing about it related to what Mia was saying and what Alicia was saying, I think we watched an interview with Chantal Ackerman after watching the movie where she kind of talks about like her purpose, uh, in making the movie and what it meant means to her and what she hoped it would mean to people. And part of what she said that I thought was interesting um, was that, you know, like movies in in a lot of movies, it's like a chase or a fire or some action scene. Those are given importance because it's like big things happening. And her, she wanted to show small things and give them the same importance and the same placement on the screen. Uh, and that gives them that importance, if that makes sense. Uh, she wanted to elevate these things to the same level as like, the boxing scene of Raging Bull or the bombast of Citizen Kane and Rosebud or something, you know, uh, the craziness of Vertigo. Um, but it's just small moments. So like, and, and she described that also as a lot of those things that she was countering tend to be male centric or, or, you know, like you think of them as like, th- those are things from guy movies, you know, and so this was her saying, like, I want I want to elevate, like, what is female in the world that I see around me and the women I know or I grew up around. I want to see that on the screen and make it important in the same way. So just a little preview of the movie, I guess. But, yeah. We obviously watched this movie. It's on HBO. It's on Criterion. We watched it just sitting on the couch. And I can only imagine – what this experience would be like in a movie theater because 
like we were saying, there's just these, you know, long shots of things and you can kind of zone out and zone back in and zone out while something's going on. And of course it's easy, you know, after like an hour or whatever, oh, let's stop, let's get a snack or, oh, let's, you know, you pick up your phone for something or whatever. It's easy to kind of pull yourself out of it. And, but I, I can't imagine being in a movie theater where you can't do that and where you're also around all these other people, it reminds me of this experiment or it was like a performance thing that happened years ago where someone would just sit silently on the stage and then watch everyone get progressively more and more uncomfortable. So Alicia and Steven, since you live in a place that's real and maybe this (laughs) will come out in a movie theater or something, if you have the chance to go see it, you should because I would be so interested to to do that and or did you know hear your experiences with that yeah and to to your point like i was reading a bunch of pieces about this film after the list came out and people were starting to write about it and one of them was uh, by i believe Alyssa wilkinson at um vox she's one of the film critics at vox and she talked about how she didn't really know much about this movie at some point and she saw that it was playing uh at a on a screen in New York somewhere, I think, I think she was in New York and she was like, okay, I'm going to go to see this. And she went and she didn't realize until she was walking into the movie theater, that it's a three hour plus movie. So she like texted her husband that like, I'm going to be late for dinner. And she just like kind of settled into it and was like, Oh my God. And it was, she talked about it. Like, I'm, I'm not sure these were the words she used, but the way she described it made it sound like for her, it was like almost like this hypnotic, um, trance inducing experience or something. I'm, those are my words, not her words. Um, and so I don't know. I just wanted to bring that up since Mia, you brought that up about like not being able to see it in that way. So that someone has talked about that. If you're interested in reading that piece. That was kind of how I felt when I watched mirror Tarkovsky. I was like, just like bring that up too. Yeah. 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 That's why I was interested in seeing this too. Yeah. Just because, you know, it's really just doing this podcast has made me think of movies in a different way. Like you don't necessarily have to have a plot for a movie to be interesting or, you know, you have to, you can't compartmentalize everything (laughs) when you watch something and expecting to have some sort of payoff in a way that you expect it as because Mm -hmm. you've been watching movies a certain way, you know? So I'm okay with just having it wash over me, I think. So let's go ahead and take another quick break. We will be right back. And we're back. Maybe we should mention that Paul Schrader, who's kind of a, a bomb thrower, but also like a very gifted filmmaker, his his own self, like he is, for people who might not know, he wrote Taxi Driver, which we mentioned earlier. He wrote, it was one of the writers on Raging Bull. He's worked with Martin Scorsese a whole lot. He has directed a whole lot of films himself, American Gigolo, First Reformed, um, The Card Counter. He has a movie call, coming out called like Master Gardener. Like he's a relevant filmmaker um, for sure. Um, I feel stupid even saying that. But anyway, he has a very active sometimes Facebook page where he will say stuff and people will get mad about it because he says stuff that he, uh, that, you know, it rubs people the wrong way sometimes. Um, So this is what he said. Uh, He said, for 70 years, the sight and sound poll has been a reliable, if somewhat incremental measure of critical consensus and priorities. Films moved up the list, others moved down, but it took time. The sudden appearance of Jean Dillman, 
in the number one slot undermines the sight and sound poll's credibility. It feels off, as if someone had put their thumb on the scale, which I suspect they did. As Tom Stoppard pointed out in Jumpers, in democracy, it doesn't matter who gets the votes, it matters who counts the votes. By expanding the voting community and the point system this year's sight and sound poll reflects not a historical continuum, but a politically correct rejiggering. Ackerman's film is a favorite of mine, a great film, a landmark film, but its unexpected number one rating does it no favors. Jean Dillman will from this time forward be remembered not only as an important film in cinema history, but also as a landmark of distorted woke reappraisal. So I do want to just right off of there say that I don't think that Paul Schrader does himself any favors um, by using terms like woke reappraisal or politically correct rejiggering. Like, I think if you took those away, he has like a somewhat valid point that you can engage with, disagree with, agree with, whatever you want. Like, I think it just depends on like what you think this list is and should be. Like, should the this list that comes out every 10 years be a an agreed upon canon of the greatest films of all time? Or should it be sort of like a snapshot of, for lack of a better word, the zeitgeist of the moment and what is viewed as important, the values that are important at the time the poll comes out, or some combination of the two? Is it on a spectrum between those two points? And like I like I said, I think that other than him being so angry about it, he doesn't necessarily have an invalid point here. Um, not that he needs me to say that to him. But um, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think? If you were ranking your top 10, would that be number one? Would it even be in your top 10 at all? Like, what what are your thoughts on that? Because I haven't seen it. Steven hasn't seen it. So I don't think I could really have an opinion. But Mia, do you want to go first? I honestly feel like I'm still, and this is like a total cop out, but like, I feel like I'm still kind of like sitting with it. Like if someone was like, make a list of like your 10 favorite films, it would not be in my list of 10 favorite films. But I think it's important. And I was just because I was so I literally just as you were reading this, I was like, wait, what is he talking about this new point system? So I was trying to just Google that really quickly and find out anything about it. And I couldn't um, in 30 seconds. But what I did see was this. There's a lot of people talking about this quote online. And just one thing I saw quickly said that Jean Dielman was the highest ranked movie by a female director in the 2012 poll, which makes sense. Mm. Um, and so I wonder how many people, again, being deliberate, were like, I want to put a film by a female filmmaker in my top 10. This is the one that stand, you know, not even saying it was like some like organized thing, but like this is the one that you would clearly choose because it's like has the most chance of like yeah. rising, not necessarily to the number one spot or even the top 10, but just rising in the poll to me. So I disagree with the idea that like, okay, now the 2022 list is like the film canon and like forget all these other lists. To me, it's like there's changing mores, there's changing preferences. Like, you know, hopefully, in my opinion, at least, these things are pushing in like a more progressive way over time and becoming more inclusive and broader about like who makes films and what stories are told. I understand that not everyone thinks like that, um, including Paul Schrader, potentially. Um, this is a long non-answer to your question, but I'm okay with there being different mm. polls and them each having their own value in them. 
that's cool. You mean from year to 10 years later or from directors to credit? What are the different polls? From, sorry, over it? the years. Like to okay, me, it, yeah. it's not like, oh, now we have this poll and that's the greatest films of all time forever. And like, let's just like rip up these polls that came in 2012 right. or 2002 or 1992. To me, it's like, it just, it's like a snapshot in time of what people were right. thinking about then. And hopefully over time, we have more women, we have more people of color, we have more diversity in both filmmakers and stories being told. And so fine, that's a snapshot of where we are as a society right now that like for a bunch of people, it was important that there be a female directed film in their top 10, obviously. Um, I'm okay with that personally. Yeah. And I also think that like it might not be as uh, now that I know because I didn't know that. So I'm glad that you pointed it out that uh, that Jean Delman was the highest ranked female directed film last time. Um, and what do we say? It was at 35 mm-hmm. last time now. And now obviously at one, um, like it might just be as simple as since it was the highest rated, more people watched it and agreed that it should be, uh, recognized. And so that it just naturally ascended, you know, like, because it, it might not be that there was like some concerted effort and like chattering between people that like, we need to get a female directed film, uh, at the top of the list, it might have just been that there was more interest in that film since it was the top one. So, like, I didn't know that before you you said that. Um, yeah, so and I think I it wonder. can be both, right? Like, I think yeah. these people are, you know, colleagues and all of that. Like, it's not like they're not talking about yeah, that's this. True. Like, yeah, they. I mean, they're, they're critics. <laughs> their their whole job is basically having conversations about film. So, mm-hmm. like, it's not like this didn't come up with people. Yeah. That doesn't mean, it, but it still doesn't mean it was like a concerted effort of like, sure, you're in on this conspiracy to like anoint this film it could still just be like a completely natural outcome of circumstances yeah but to answer the question myself i wouldn't put it at the top personally but i also just watched it five days ago or something you know like i I don't think i would ever put a movie i saw so recently at the top of a list but like i can understand why it's at the top of some people's list. I'm not sure if it'll ever be at the top of mine. Like I have films that I really love that I would put at the top. Like 2001 is my favorite film of all time. It's also the top film on the director's list. And I'm really happy to see that. I thought it might end up at the top spot here. Um, I, I It was one of the few films that I thought had a shot at that. I never in a million years saw Jean Dillemont coming for that. But who cares? Like, I mean, I, I do think that there is something reactionary about this list this time, and that's fine. Like, I, reactionary isn't always bad, I think. Like, I think more people um, are watching Jean Dillemont and other films on this list that, like, we're kind of using Jean Dillemont as a placeholder maybe for other films, you know, too, that, like, are getting more attention now because they made it as high as they did and onto the list at all. You know, and that's great. Like, I think that that's a great thing that people are finding new films. Like, that's part of why I originally cared about this list 20 years ago. It's like, I've seen this film. I've seen that film. I love those. And they're saying that these films are as good as that. So I want to watch these, you know, like that's what these lists are for to me. Um, But yeah, for some people, it's supposed to be a canon and it didn't work out for them, I guess. You know, what are you going to do? I don't worry too much personally about like, what's number one and what's number five, (laughs) you know, anything like that. I just like, 
I kind of prefer to look at the list overall. I mean, obviously, like, we've been paying special attention to movies that were in the top 10. But, Mm -hmm. like, I just think it's exciting to see things represented on there that I haven't seen in the past. And I know know I'm not a younger person. (laughs) But especially if you want to continue making things that are that young people are interested in or, or you want to keep young people engaged with your poll um and your list then yeah you need to you need to open it up a little bit to like newer filmmakers right. and women and people of different backgrounds and i just think it's like a necessary thing that has to happen i don't know if somebody put their thumb on the scale as he, you know as yeah, says, I... but like i mean it may be yeah like maybe Maybe it wasn't like let's let's all get together and make this the number one, but just like opening it up to more people will naturally, hopefully, continue to make that happen and made it happen right. this time. Well, you touched on another part of Schrader's message that I just don't see the point of because, like, yeah, I do think someone put their thumb on this scale. They just didn't do it in the way that he's right. claiming because yeah. they they yep. they they invited new people to be a part of this process. So that was the way they put the thumb on the scale. They were like, we think that this could be better. So let's invite these people. And now we have this list. So yeah, thumb on scale. It was before the voting started, though, because if, if you want to get into his like, who counts the votes and who or whatever, like it's just who voted mm-hmm. was more important this time, um, which we've talked in, on this podcast previously about like, we hoped that that would be the case. So this is what happens when you do that. So not that everybody has to agree with us who listens to this podcast, or we don't all have to agree amongst ourselves about that, you know, but yeah, we might end up, know. Stephen yeah. and I might end up hating this movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. yeah, you now, might. I can't say, you know, I think it's an easily hateable movie. Like, honestly, like I'm not saying that as like a derogatory thing. It's a difficult movie, well, but we've seen it's also different. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's important, though. It's an important film. Like, it's been influential in a way that I didn't realize before and understand better after having seen it. So It was funny that Alicia said she doesn't pay attention to um, lists, but I really do pay attention to lists. So if I see a top 10 list, I'll immediately see what's the number one movie and see if maybe that's something that I agree with or disagree with. And if I didn't see it, then I'm Mm -hmm. much more prone to look for it. So I feel like with that list, it does kind of lend itself to having a number one that a lot of people like even casual moviegoers or even critics have not even heard of and they would seek it out to try to watch it. Um, And it does make more people actually look at the list since there is so many different movies and it's kind of made a splash, I think, Um, because I I mean, I've heard of Sight and Sound, but it is a magazine that, you know, I I feel like magazines in general are not really followed that much anymore. So Mm -hmm. I feel like they do lend themselves to having something that's not really well known um, to have it be number one. Mm-hmm. And just a, as a way of showing the interest in this movie because of this list, like I, I saw something from Letterboxd tweeted something that um, for people who don't know, Letterboxd is a website. It's basically a social media website for movie lovers where you can go on there, um, rate movies that you've seen, review them, uh, interact with other people doing the same thing. Um, and they said that like one of the things you can do on the website is like mark films that you want to watch. And so you add it to your watch list and the percentage by which that increased for Jean Delon after those, this list came out uh, between the time it came out and whenever they tweeted, this was 3,400%. Wow. Um, 
you know, mm. like from the time from whatever period before that. Um, I don't great. know if they were talking about like within a week versus a week or like a couple of days versus a couple of days or whatever, but it was like a, an exponential, um, you know, increase. So like this generated interest, like we were talking about previously, mm-hmm. or at least I was in the film. Um, and they were just using that because it's the top of the heap. Like I'm sure if they drilled down into how many people are interested in Beau Travel now, like something similar, like even Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which a lot of people are probably still fresh in their mind, but like a lot of people probably still don't know about that movie either because it's like an art house uh, international film, you know? But yeah, yeah, I mean, well, like, as I said, I don't always pay attention to like the rank, the actual rankings on a list, but like mm-hmm. this coming in at number one definitely like made me pay attention to it and made me really curious and also made me excited like even if it does even if i do end up thinking it sucks or something like (laughs) it's it was still exciting for me when i saw it as like something i never heard of by a woman about Mm -hmm. a woman i found that really exciting and it made me more interested in looking at everything on the list than i ever have been in the past Mm -hmm. so i think that's always going to be a good thing if you can bring more people in so i i know we've been going long at this point, but uh, there are a few other things I would love to get to if that's okay. And we could go through these kind of quickly if you want. Um, so I did want to address the fact that there is no Spielberg film on the critics list, but he was on the director's list. Uh, I wanted to bring this up for, for our friend Charlie from our Facebook group. Um, Cause he, he pointed this out to us in, in the comments on, 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 in our Facebook group when we put, were uh, posting about the new list and like this is another point, another thing where I saw speculation about it of vote splitting, basically. Like, think about how many films people consider their favorite by Spielberg. Like, a lot of people think Close Encounters is their is his best film. A lot of people think E.T. A lot of people think Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, like, it's probably just that not enough people just pick the same movie. <laughs> he has a lot of good movies or a lot of beloved movies, mm-hmm. you know. So that's probably accounts for that. I, I buy that argument. Let's get rid of Piero LeFou and put any Spielberg movie on there, honestly. <laughs> and I mean, to me, right. like Schindler's List, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the critical take on Schindler's List, but like, I feel like that was a really important film that just yeah. gets like no attention and people never, people don't even hardly talk about it at all anymore. So didn't it win Best Picture? Mm-hmm. I think yeah. so. It won Best Picture. He won Best Director for the first time. Yeah. But yeah, I do feel like that movie doesn't have like the critical long tail that you would maybe think it would. Like I, I, mm. it gets kind of viewed by some people as like, oh, it was his Oscar movie, mm. you know, and then he got back to his normal thing. Um, <laughs> for, I mean, so then there's interesting takes like Jay Hoberman saying that uh, of the two films that Spielberg made in 1993, Jurassic Park was the real Holocaust movie. <laughs> Um, wow. I don't, yeah, that I don't know, how to, I don't know how to process that. <laughs> so an- another thing I want to bring up for Alicia oh. is that this is the first time in this poll's history that rules of the game oh hasn't been in the top 10. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, if, if people want to go back and listen to our rules of the game episode, um, Alicia, not a big fan of that movie. Mm-hmm. No, I had a very strong negative reaction to that movie so yeah i'm totally <laughs> fine with it not being on the top yeah. 10. that's another one i feel like you could replace any spielberg movie with that movie and i would be totally fine with it didn't like mia it. did i don't know if i'd say any spielberg <laughs> no, movie, I'm saying but... any. <laughs> yeah i know you are but 
I, I do I do understand it though. Temple like I, we talked about on that episode that like I think there's a lot about that movie that's so specific to the time and place it was made that it, it can be hard to kind of relate to it without going deep on like reading up on what the movie is yeah. about and why this is in there and why this person acts like this and stuff like sure. that. You know, it's it's harder to engage with. However many decades you know, later, I'm, that, I'm being since it facetious came out. when I say all that. I mean, yeah. honestly, like I understand why it's there and there are things that I can appreciate about it. Just like for me personally, I just didn't like it, but Mm -hmm. I, you know, so (laughs) I'm happy it's not in the top 10, but I'm sure like it deserves to be on the list or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) One other thing I did want to bring up is just the movies that came out since the last poll that did make it onto this poll. Get Out came in tied at 95. Parasite was tied at 90. Moonlight tied at 60, and I think we've already said that Portrait of a Lady on Fire came in at 30, which is a huge debut on this list. Y'all asked me and I if Jean Delmont would have been at the top of our list, um, but let's just open it up a little bit. Like, it, it, Is there any movie that anyone here, or movies, like, have you thought about like what would have been in your top 10 list that you would have submitted if you were a voter in this? Has anybody? like You don't have to go through a whole 10, um, but like, is there a movie you know would be on it? Um, I, I always, <laughs> I'm always the person who wants Pulp Fiction on the list. I mean, <laughs> I, I know Quentin Tarantino, people kind of consider him a, a hack, but I just think in terms of like just filmmaking and, and storytelling, I really just love that movie through and through. Um, so that would have been my my top pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love Pulp Fiction. I would I would be happy to see that on there too. Yeah, Tarantino's a little controversial, but I still mm-hmm. think his films are like just so much fun and especially Pulp Fiction is like for me his most fun movie. But um I think I already said like Moonlight was on my list and I was really like trying to think of what else I would pick cuz I was like, well maybe I maybe I pick maybe I wouldn't pick Moonlight. You know, I was just kind of trying to think about other stuff cuz we were talking about what movies we would add and watch before this before the new list came out that we didn't get around to doing but um right moonlight was the one that i just kept coming back to and i found it just like so moving i think it's really cool that like get out and do the right thing are on there too do the right thing like should have been on before already but um moonlight i found this like so out of those three movies that's the one that i found like the most personally like moving and transcendent or whatever so mm. i was just really happy to see that one on there mia any any movies mm-hmm. now you're making me want to rewatch moonlight because so good so good um i really love parasite and i'm glad it's on the list i personally would have put it like significantly higher if i was making a list i'm okay that it's lower because i understand like you know it's new and I, I'm okay with it taking time to rise, but I hope in 2032 that it's higher. Um, I also, out of relatively recent movies, um, I really love Lady Bird and I would love to see that on the list too. Okay. Uh, well, I, I uh, did come up with a full top bootleg ballot of 10 movies. Huh? Overachiever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think about movies too much. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, so I'll just read it off. Uh, at number 10, I put Hiroshima Monomore. At number nine, I put Camera Person. 
which I don't know if it's ever gotten mentioned on this podcast before. It's a documentary um, that came out, I don't know how many years ago now, sometime in the last five to ten years, I believe. Um, and it's directed by a woman, which is also nice that it, I have it in here for that. I like it a lot. Um, and I feel a little self-conscious about this one, but at number eight, I have There Will Be Blood, um, which I, I think it's considered to be just like a film bro movie by a lot of serious film people. But it's a movie that just like I go back to a lot and always find to be very rich. Um, number seven, I have Bicycle Thieves. Six, Do the Right Thing. Five, The Night of the Hunter. And uh, four, Passion of Joan of Arc. Three, Pather Panchali. Two, The Godfather. And 2001, A Space Odyssey at number one. Um, and I will say that I, I basically like what we talked about with The Godfather before. I decided I'm just going to have the one film. I thought about putting two right behind one on this list, but I just decided go with the film that stands on its own. Um, and I, Pather Panchali, I will say, like, I was surprised that this wasn't higher this time because um, we I think we've talked in this episode and maybe others about how like sometimes when a movie has a re-release that seems to help it um, on this poll, the, the poll that comes out after that big re release and um, Pather Panchali had a big release a few years ago. And so I just thought it'd be higher. thought it might even end up in the number one spot because of that, but it did not. Um, and then I will point out that Do the Right Thing and Night of the Hunter, which I have at five and six, um, kind of share a thing because in Night of the Hunter, uh, Robert Mitchum has love and hate tattooed on his knuckles. And then Spike Lee takes that and do the right thing and makes them into brass knuckles mm -hmm. in, in that movie, which I think is, I, I didn't mean to put them next to each other, but then looking at it, realized that and thought that was kind of interesting. But anyway, so that's my list. If I'd have been invited to participate, which why would I? But I like that you had Hiroshi Momona more on there because that was one yeah. of my favorites that we've watched so far too. And it's, it hasn't been on the list at all for a long time. <laughs> that would definitely be on my yeah. list. It was between that and Tokyo story for me. And I just decided at the last minute sort of that, like, I, I think I need more time with Tokyo story. I, I liked it a lot, but it's been a little bit since we watched it. So it's kind of faded a little bit, but I remember liking it. And I think I like it more now even than I did right after watching it. And I just, I want to go back to it. Mm. I bet if I'd watched it again, it would be in here. But maybe Hiroshima Monomore is a little fresher for me or just like the things that stood out to me were enough that I was like, I, I want to put this in there. Like, I think it represents something that I would like to see on my list. Um, but I really like both of those movies a lot. Um, uh, Tokyo Story 2 is like a movie that I thought might be number one um, on the critics list. And it, and it wasn't obviously, but... So it was like, I thought, I thought it would be either Pather Panchali, Tokyo Story, or 2001. And uh, yeah, not so much. Yeah, I liked Tokyo Story a lot too. Yeah, I just wanted to say one more thing because I meant to bring this up earlier and then you reminded me when you said the re-release. And one thing that I also wonder if it played into the greater diversity of the films on this list. Um, one, I think that Jean Dielman, I read somewhere the other day, it did have a re-release um, or maybe just even a more broad release right? Um, recently. So that probably helped it. But also too, you know, from 
2012 to now think how much streaming has grown like was there even like the criterion channel that you could watch in 2012 um i don't know also people have spent a lot of time at home the last three years watching movies (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i wonder too if it's just like you know movies that you know maybe you always knew oh this is the movie like i should watch or and I, i mean again i assume the people who are voting on these polls have probably seen all these movies already because they do movies but you know there's got to be something to there being greater accessibility to these films where you can just watch it even if you don't live in New York or LA or somewhere and you can like go deep on you know watch every single Godard film on the Criterion channel or you know whatever um in a way that wasn't as accessible before um so anyways I think the impact of streaming and the pandemic on this in addition to the other social changes and stuff that we talked about earlier, like probably cannot be underestimated. Mm -hmm. I think another thing to maybe think about is that I, I, my sense of it is that who critics are generally movie critics. I'm talking specifically about who they are generally anymore is less distant from us as moviegoers and fans than they used to be. Um, Like it used to be that like you would read like the critic from the New Yorker or New York Times or whoever. And it was like this person uh, way off somewhere that watched these movies and like spoke from on high in a way. And like maybe they had a dumbass opinion, but like they were the one who whose opinion counted for whatever reason, you know. And now like there are more outlets, more types of outlets that employ more critics uh, from different backgrounds um, and you can interact with them. Like there's film Twitter now, like I film Twitter probably plays a big part in this letterbox plays a big part in this. Like uh, a lot of critics are accessible and in conversation with people who aren't critics uh, in a way that they weren't before um, to that degree, at least I think. So like, I have no way of quantifying that exactly, but it's a sense I have of like being, sort of in that world of like loving movies and seeking out critics and finding them accessible in a way that, that they weren't, you could like tweet at them. You could uh, like their letterbox review and just see their, and see their like stupid review on letterboxd that is just sort of off the cuff, like first thoughts and then read their like polished review later. You know, like it's, it's a different world than it was when this poll started eight decades ago or seven decades ago or whatever it was. Um, so I don't know. I, I think that that kind of goes hand in hand with what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. Mia, of like, you know, technology has changed and the people and have changed too, along with that, you know, like it's, it's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah, Paul Schrader. (laughs) Take your woke (laughs) reappraisal and go home. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I, it's so sad to me when people, when people who can be so like smart because Paul Schrader is like an intelligent person, but sometimes he just says stuff that I'm just like, shut the fuck up. I think it's just like age. Like, you know, people just don't like to, you know, you get to a certain point and you don't like to have your, um, your rankings, uh, reappraised. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, This was a big sea change. Yeah. 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 It's funny too, though, because like Paul Schrader is like, I think of him as like, I think I said when I brought it up, brought him up like a bomb thrower. So you'd think he'd be a little more into that. Like, it's funny when the bomb thrower is like, I want the cannon, you know, well, maybe he just wanted to be controversial on his Facebook. Yeah. 
Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I wanted to start shit. Yeah. I mean, in a way, <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is throwing a bomb. I mean, again, like as we talked about, to me saying, you know, like implying voter fraud is like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> extremely triggering yeah. using distorted woke reappraisal. It's also just to me, and I know, again, like we've been focusing so much on John Dealman as you know, kind of this stand in almost for like all the changes on the poll, but it just feels like just another thing of like, what the fuck do you want from women? Okay. Like, you know, we can't be the number one movie for so long. And now uh, finally this movie by and about a woman is here and, oh no, it was too fast. You know, it just feels like, like I've heard this argument before about like abortion, about a woman president, about like anything to do with women. So I'm just like, Shut up. <laughs> Go away, old man. It's never the right woman and it, no. it's never the right time. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm just Yeah, there's a lot of gatekeeping going yeah, on, yes. right? Gatekeep, girl boss, gaslight. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's it for this special episode of the Stereoactive Movie Club. We invite you to join us in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Movie Club. You can also email us at stereoactivemovieclub at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to the show just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere else that allows you to do that. It helps others to find the show, and we really appreciate it. Also, you can get updates about this show by following Stereoactive Media on Instagram or Twitter. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media.